Hello everyone and welcome to another Royal Automobile Club talk show in association with Motorsport. I'm Ed Foster and I'm joined by Alan Hyde who's responsible for the audio and I'm joined by Simon Aaron, the features editor of Motorsport and 1996 world champion Damon Hill. Damon, a very warm welcome. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. Yeah, I um, did a little bit of research, not much because it's obviously very obvious what this year is and it's the 20th anniversary of your championship year. That's right. And this time, 20 years ago today, uh, so you were in the run-up to the German Grand Prix, a race you won. Yeah. Um, does it really feel like 20 years? No, it doesn't. Uh, it is quite, it's quite strange. I mean, uh, I can see the look on young people's faces when I, when I say, you know, I won it 20 years ago, and they just glaze over because it completely doesn't mean anything to them at all. You know, so uh, so there's definitely uh, the new wave coming through. I'm 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 no longer relevant to them. Um, more relevant because I do work with Sky and actually talk about what's happening now on um, Sky F1. But um, uh, yes, 20 years ago, it doesn't seem that long ago to me, but it is 20 years and there's no way you can get around that. Do you, do you find that you're sort of getting stopped in the street more with your Sky appearance now rather than, say, sort of five years ago? Yes, I think so. Um, it, it's not, uh, you know, it's pay-per-view, so there's the, the, the viewing figures are not uh, as massive as they, they used to be in the old days of free-to-air. But um, I think a lot of people, particularly the hardcore fans and the people who are really committed to the sport, um, you know, see it. And there's a lot of them. So, um, so yes, I do get uh, recognised for that. But um, still, some people don't, don't, uh, don't know that I'm doing it. So. Um, what I thought we might do is actually rewind right back to the beginning, um, before Formula One, before single-seaters. Because um, I remember seeing a quote from you about the fact that you actually had posters of bikes on your wall rather than Formula One cars or cars. Is, is, that, is that right? Well, my first love was, was motorbikes. My first interest was motorbikes. And um, uh, I'd been around cars my whole life. So for me to... I didn't go all gooey when I saw a Lotus, for example, because um, because that was just there. You know, it was just my, my dad drove one of those or he drove a BRM. Um, and I grew up in that world, so it was it was it was that was, if you like, the wallpaper was was Formula One cars. So, um, you know, I stuck something else on top, which was my my love, which was um, the thing that I particularly was attracted to was was motorbikes. And you went from uh, obviously the, the love of motorbikes then got you into actually racing bikes. How how did you get into the actual racing part of it? Was it just one day you woke up and thought, you know, what, right, I want to well, I want to do that? The or was it a slow burner with? Yeah, well, that sequence of events was that um, I first rode a motorbike at Silverstone, which was a little Honda monkey bike, which was owned by um, uh, the Chevlov brothers. It was the Chevlov, Nick and... Um, um, Nick and... Simon, don't Simon. tell me there's a no, hole no, in your no, knowledge. No, no, we no, finally, no. we <laughs> finally <laughs> found a hole in the knowledge yeah. of Simon Aaron. Oh <laughs> and and I will be uh, I will be not forgiven for forgetting um, Nick's brother's name. But anyway, the pay the point is that they um, uh, they uh, had this moment and they said, you are, I was just mucking about killing time, and I had to go." They said, "Do you want to have a ride on one?" So I got on one, and that was the 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 light bulb moment for me was getting on a motorbike and turning the twist grip, and the thing just accelerated. So after that, I pestered my dad to get me one. Um, and uh, I got one for being for it being eleven. It was supposed to be for passing eleven plus. It was a kind of supposed to be some reward. But so I rode a, rode a motorbike from the age of eleven. Um, and then after my dad died, I I went actually. I always hankered after racing and got into being a fan of bike racing and um, and started entering races. Is it? I was chatting to um, Ian Flux. Michael Chevlov. 
sorry, Michael <laughs> Shevlov. Michael Michael Shevlov actually did the F one um, film one, um, and so uh, he has got a connection there. <clears throat> I was chatting to Ian Flux uh, a few months back, and we were talking about various things, and he said he remember had very clear memories of there was a party of some kind, a British Grand Prix, and all the drivers took part in some sort of motor, motocross trial or scrambling trial, and you you beat you beat all the Grand Prix drivers. You would have been 13, 14 or something. No, that was the Hesketh trial. And oh, actually, there, there was the Hesketh, yeah, yeah, it was the Hesketh trial, and I think it was on the Sunday. So I think the Grand Prix the was Grand on Prix Saturday. The Grand Prix was on Saturday back then, yeah. yeah it was, yeah, wasn't it? Yeah. Okay, so... Um, so that's right. So on the Sunday, we all went to Lord Hesketh had a, um, a quarry on, on his estate. As you do. As you do. <laughs> and, um, and so they, they decided to have a bit of a lark um, and a muck about on motorbikes, which, was, which they were having fun. I was, but I was taking it deadly seriously because I was, you know, I, I was... Because you, you were 13 or whatever. I was 13, <laughs> yeah. And, um, and I had a motorbike. So um, I was trying to show off my skills, and I, I remember doing wheelies for everyone. And um, but the problem was, I kept falling off the bike, and I couldn't restart the damn thing. So I started to lose my temper a bit. And um, I, I, uh, it was, but it was an amazing. It was James Hunt were there. My dad was having a go there, and all Gordon Coppock and and designers and in, and team bosses were all mucking about. So um, it was a bit. It was all fun, as it as you'd expect with Hesketh. I call it the Hesketh trial, but every time I say that, people think it was when, you know, <laughs> when he was actually event. up in front of the beat for something. <laughs> but uh, anyway, it was, it was, an, yeah, it was a good event. Um, there's that, we've got so, so many questions. I've tried to condense them down. Um, we've still got pages and pages of them. So there's actually one from Ray here about your dad. Um, and he wants to know whether he ever talked about the drivers he rated that he raced against when, when you were younger. Um, and any names that spring to mind? Yeah, I mean, not to me directly, but um, in in uh, in just reflecting and, and reading up about my dad, you know, you 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 get it. It, you, it becomes quite clear that he he certainly rated Sterling Moss, um, and I think mostly the drivers that were bef before his era, so the the people who he'd um, aspired to be like, I suppose, um, on the way through. Um, but um, clearly, you know, he. Um, he 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 had that camaraderie as well with with the with the drivers he raced against. I think he he respected. There was some there's some good comments he made about um, Jack Brabham um, when Jack Brabham retired. I think he made some comments to the effect that you know Jack was a pretty hard customer to race against. But uh, he he kind of he clearly respected Jack. Uh, um, but the, he always knew that he was if he ever tried to overtake him, he was going to end up <laughs> somewhere going to take to the grass. I think. Um, and um, so I think my dad, the message I got was that my dad loved the guys he raced against. Um, I don't think there was ever any kind of real animosity or rivalry, strong rivalry with anyone in particular. Yeah, so different to today. Um, there's, I, I had a read of Simon Tater's lunch with, uh, with you. I still haven't got that phrase right. Um, but, and that was back in 2007. You said that actually uh, becoming a racing driver, you becoming a racing driver, was a way of sort of standing up and measuring yourself against your dad. Is that um, to sort of explain that a bit? Because it's well, quite um, interesting. It was. I think it, it's. Uh, I think it's difficult to know whether I would have take uh, if my dad had lived, whether or not I would have carried on and become a racing driver like him. I think there's there's an element of wanting to know what it is about you, your your parents, um, particularly. Um, your, your your dad, you know. In my case, my dad wanted to know what their what their lives are about. Um, and you know, Josh, 
my son raced cars as well and now he found out and he found out that's not what he wants to do so um but in my case you know my dad wasn't around so i think i i carried on with racing because i think i have a strong competitive urge um and i think that there was an element of um experiencing at least getting a flavor of what what his life was like through through being a racing driver myself you mentioned Josh there. Were you quite relieved when he decided that he didn't want to pursue a career in racing, having seen sort of how hard it was from, from doing it yourself? My, my accountant was relieved, <laughs> and so was I. I mean, it is ridiculously expensive. You know, and, it, and it is, you know, when you think about the money that you're spending and the amount of money I spent on my children's education, I mean, there's just, no, I could have put hundreds of people through college, you know, for that, for that expense. And just, you start to think... You know, there's something a bit sick about the amount of money we're blowing here, um, but that wasn't the reason. You know, he stopped. I was, I just pitched up for a season in Formula Three for him, and he was doing very well. And, and you know, and I was still trying to find the money to go racing for him because he was looking promising. But he decided himself. He'd found out what he wanted to find out. He'd found out that he he was good. He enjoyed it, but not enough to want to go through the the grilling and the the other trials that come your way as a racing driver. Can you can you relate to the way the sports changed? I mean, you first sat in a single seater. I think you were twenty three when I saw you in a Formula Ford two thousand Argo at Brands Hatch. That I does mean, not surprise me that you, um, <laughs> Ma- that yeah, you were Ma- there. Max Verstappen's in a Formula One car at seventeen. Mad. I mean, it, yeah. it is it's just a completely different universe. Um, it is. It is. It, I mean, the there's it's almost like there's the the F one. Hoover, if you like, if you want to call it that, is 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 it's sucking up um, the very talented ones. They will they will go th- straight to into F one. I mean, even Jensen Button went straight from F three into into Formula One. Um, Lewis had to go through um, the ritual and the and the, routi- the the rigorous testing in GP two, um, but um, there is. There is there's so many more drivers out there competing. If you go to if we look at form GP two, that there are, you know, there are twenty twenty two is it twenty four twenty four twenty four twenty six on the on the grid for GP two, and those guys are finding budgets of nearly you know two million um, quid. I don't know what it is re- recently. The last I time think I it's, about it's, it's about it's about it's uh, about million euros. Yeah, I think, something like that. yeah. So it's a lot of money for for those guys just to be, and they'd usually do more than one season. So. There's plentiful supply of people out there, probably more so than than when I was racing. Um, and um, they, they, you know, they, I suppose from a from a larger selection, it's easier to spot the the ones that have stand that stand out. But it's not. I mean, you, you, I'm pretty sure that when you first started in Formula Ford, you commuted in a battered old Transit van, didn't you? No, um, no, I don't think so. I mean, I I had a van when I raced bikes. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, so I have to put the bike in the van, obviously. And um, but um, you could do it. I I could support myself racing on motorbikes, just about. You know, with a bit of sponsorship, with a couple of grand here and there, I could actually go racing and compete at a national level. Formula Ford, it instantly jumped up to you know tens of thousands of pounds, so eighty thousand to a hundred thousand pounds for a season, a full season of Formula Ford was um, insane money. You know, my house, my first house was was just slightly more than that. I mean, and you're going to blow this money in your first year. So to try and explain that to a sponsor or to any, you know, anyone who wants to go and take part, why anyone would spend that much money on motor racing, it's very difficult to to justify it. 
Why, why did you make the jump from bikes to cars? Because um, you obviously were enjoying bikes, and you could do it yeah. with sort of within budget with, with some sponsorship. I, I just, I just think there was there was no. I couldn't see how I was going to get from where I was to where I needed to go, and and the offer came along to have a go in cars. I mean, I have, um, I got. Uh, I have actually written a book, so you'll be able to get all of this information <laughs> in my book in September, um, which ca it comes out called Watching the Wheels. So uh, I go into it in more detail, but just briefly to cut the chase, there was a uh, an opportunity to, to go uh, in uh, to go to Win the Winfield School in France, which um, my mum met a guy called Mike Knight who ran it, and um, he said, "Well, why doesn't Damon come over and have a go at that?" And I think my my mum was. Uh, you know, as you'd expect, slightly anxious about me racing bikes because at the same time I was also a dispatch rider. So I was riding a bike during the week around London and racing a bike at the weekend. Um, so my, my life expectancy, or at least my limb expectancy, was probably quite poor. But isn't that partly down to the fact that you were two-wheel drifting it around Belgravia Square, I think it was, in the wet? Um, well, Belgravia Square is a, is a particularly good spot if you want to <laughs> you want to get onto some slippery surface. And... Um, and you know, riding every day from dawn till dusk, you get pretty good, you know, and, it, and in all weathers. So I would be working in riding around the bike around London and, you know, you've got all the diesel oil and you've got some very polished surfaces as well. So you just get incredibly good at riding a bike. We've, we've actually got a Formula Ford question here, which... Um not, is, is not from me either. Not from you, which no, is astonishing. No. Uh, but you were probably at, you, you know, you were probably at all the races in '84. Um, this is from Nick Mitchell, and he wants to know the memories of your Van Diemen um, from '84 because he now owns it. All right, the yeah. memories of, of my '84 Van Diemen. Yeah. Well, um, Nick, did you say? Yes, Nick, Nick Mitchell. Nick, it wasn't one of my favourite cars. I'm terribly <laughs> sorry to say that to you. <laughs> Uh, it, I'm sorry, it was I think okay. The price has just gone down. It was okay. <laughs> it wasn't nearly as good as the '85 one, um, but it wasn't too bad. And it was, you know, I had some great races in it and um, some good fun times. Was it the '84 car that got uh, battered by Mark Blundell on every lap in the festival? Or was that the '85 car? Yeah, I think that was the. Um, I think that was the '85 car that I. I there was a there was a classic heat with um, Pete, um, Pete Rogers, and um, Tim. Jones and Mark Blundell and, and me and um, they all ran a bit we got a bit tangled up at Druids and I ended up I started went in fourth and came out first um, so that was a good one but then Mark didn't Mark sort of hit you up the gearbox every lap and lift the back of the car off the ground yeah he, he used to give me he got a bit close I think and was trying to give me the hurry up um, and so that was okay because what happened was his nose cone went underneath the gearbox and lifted up the the rear wheels and then they got a little bit more revs and so when they when it came <laughs> off and dropped down I got a little bit more of a spurt out of the corner so he was actually helping me um, and um, yeah it was it was some really great racing quite scary to watch now when you look back on YouTube but, um, there, were, there were some amazing t names that you know with the whole with Herbert Blundell um, John Booth Richard Dean Perry McCarthy um, did you realize at the time sort of what a golden era of Formula Ford it was and how with all the British British drivers coming up? Um, I think it was a, there was definitely a little bit of a buzz around. I mean, Nigel and Derek, of course, as well in Formula One and, and Martin Brundle as well. They were, they were the boys, you know, who we aspired to, to join in F1. And um, there was quite a strong contingent um, in, in the racing. And yeah, we'd all, we all actually, you know, Bailey, McCarthy, Blundell, um, myself, um, have I forgotten anything, anyone? Um, there's someone else there, Herbert, um, Donnelly. You know, we all got through to F1. Um, so that's quite an impressive performance, really. Yeah. It is amazing. Because um, 
I think looking at your career then, Formula 3, Formula 3000, it was, the money was obviously always a problem. There was a huge struggle. Do you not, by then, I guess you had decided you wanted to be an F1 and that was just the goal. Um, yeah, I mean, I you think... you not want to go back to bikes and... No, no I think the thing is you, you, you kind of... It, the goal is to get to the top. So in your, if, in your competition, it, it just you find what you're good at and then you try and get to the top of that thing. And I, and I took the, the approach that I would just do as well as I could at each stage and see, where, see whether I could go to the next level and the next level and the next level. And that's literally how I approached it. I never... Um, I never made any claims that I was going to be a world champion, you know, from the beginning because I had no idea. I had no justification for, for making that claim at all. So I just thought if I just keep doing as well as I can then and see where it goes. And it was, I mean, it's incredibly slow progress. You know, my career was just, was, you look at it now and compare it to Max Verstappen's, you know, you just, <laughs> like, I didn't get into it until I was 30. I put reverse the numbers, you know, um, I don't know when he started, but I was, it was I was 31. Um, 32 actually when I, when I actually got into Formula 1 so. it, it is amazing the Max Verstappen thing because you I, I saw a photo the other day of Button having just won his race in 2004 and he's next to this tiny child which is Max Verstappen yeah. you know with a sort of giving him a thumbs up and it's j it just puts it into amazing perspective how young he is it's, rid it's ridiculous well uh, yeah and, they, and I mean sports changed hasn't it I mean the approach to sport in my dad's era if you had said well, when he said to, some, to his friends I'm going to become a racing driver they just said well you're a complete madman obviously because you're giving up secure job security and all those things and it was very much um, a maverick job and even professional tennis or golf was something that people did because no one ever thought that you could make a career out of that, you know, but now it's taken as being a very serious career and, and children are prepared from a very early age um, and trained and, and parents have ambitions if they've got any talent and they will be trained in whatever it is, golf, tennis or any other sport, football, of course, and even motor racing from the ages of four, you know. And so by the time they get to 15, they've done 10 years. I was going to say, listen, the difference now is that, I mean, cadet karting is pretty much for eight-year-olds now, as Formula Ford was for 18 and 19-year-olds back sort of when, back when you started. Or yeah. I know you started a bit later than that. Yeah, and, and so they, the, the investment in them is, and the, in time and money, is, is huge. Um, and, and so you're, you're looking at someone like Max, you know, he's 18, but he's not really a, a very young driver. You know, he's been doing it since he was, I don't know, when he was five, four. Do you think there's anything to to read into the fact that there's quite a lot of sons of Formula One drivers, um, sons of drivers who over the past sort of five ten years have been coming up? Is that because they're better prepared for it? Because I don't I, I don't think it happens in other sports so much, does it? it um, I don't. No, I don't honestly know. I mean, I, I I saw David Beckham's son's given up playing football, hasn't he? I mean, it, it's. I don't think he needs to do anything. Uh, well, <laughs> I mean, I, I know I'm sure he has to do his own thing, but um, th but the. It is interesting that I think our sport is particularly difficult to to access, and I think having someone who's got experience of, of the lay of the land and and the and all the, the the very difficult routes and the decisions that have to be made. So having having a dad who's had experience or recent experience of doing that is a help, I think, in in our sport possibly more than any other sport. But don't forget, in my dad's era and 
and in the previous eras, the guys that went racing did it against their parents' wishes. So there's been a huge shift. So Nicky Lauder, Jackie Stewart, my dad. My dad didn't actually do it against his parents' wishes, but they didn't help him. And, and most parents um, took a very dim view of their sons becoming racing drivers. Just going back to your, you mentioned the, how relatively slow your career path was. But I, I always thought it was... Um, it reflected your determination, shall we say, to some of the things you would jump in when you, after the Formula 3 period, with when you were sponsored by Selnet, and, I mean, some of the, you drove the, was it called the Mooncraft or the Footwork at the time? It was the, I mean, it was, a, it was a horrible thing. Yeah, the, foot, Footwork were the sponsors. Yeah, yeah also sponsor and the, the car was a Mooncraft. And it was a Mooncraft, and, yeah. and then, you know, that dried, or something else dried up, and you you jumped into a Colin Bennett Reynard for a couple of British Formula 3000 jumps. I mean, you, you were... Your determination to keep your foot somewhere on the rung, anywhere on the rung, was it was quite apparent. I I, I think that's. Um, I mean, I was. I thought you were going to say that actually, it wasn't such a long time. But actually, you know, when I when you consider, I started in my first car race was a complete disaster in '93. '83. I see. '83. <laughs> <83. laughs> jump, 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 um, if you take that first season as my first season, then it took me um, six years to get t the testing drive with Williams. So I think... There's not, not much when you look at the kids no, today yeah, and all no. the karting they do. It was just I was older, yeah. yeah. Um, how did the testing role come about at Williams? How did that, that materialise from, yeah. from the Formula 3000 drives? Well, I'd also make the point that in, in, in now, now it's seen as an ambition to get taken up as a driver as, and be the test driver because that's seen as, as, as definitely your first reserve to, to be a, a stand-in driver. But in those days, um, when I was a test driver, it was seen as you know a failed racing driver's job. You, you didn't quite uh, cut the mustard and you weren't going to go to F1, so no one really wanted to do it. But Mark Blundell had, had a um, good experience with, with Williams and then he'd got uh, an, op an offer. He was going to race with... Brabham and then he got an offer to test with McLaren as well so he'd he'd sort of seen this as a career uh, progression and and at the time going to McLaren was seen as a particularly good move because they were the they were the hot team in, in uh, late 90 um, 1990 late yeah. 80s, yeah. yeah and um, and so he let me, because I was racing with Middlebridge who he'd also raced with he actually let me know that that you know that this drive in three thousand was was um, was available, and um, and I then I think it followed on that I that I was going to be in the in with the chance of taking his vacant testing drive at uh, at Williams, but the way it really happened was I did well enough in nineteen ninety in three thousand that Patrick Head thought well he seems to be okay you know and uh, I was in you know. I was lucky I'd got a competitive car in 1990 and got a few pole positions and was leading races that that Patrick, I think, noticed. And uh, we've actually got a question here, which obviously I can't find now, um, about the testing the Williams during the week and then having to race the Brabham during the weekend. Um, how It must be quite a painful experience jumping from one to the other. Well, no, because I think there's a, there's a lot of misconceptions about our sport. Isn't, I mean, if you're, in a, if you're in a quick car... Um, you're seen as being the best, and if you know if a, 
rubbish car, you're seen as being rubbish. And that is a that's obviously not correct, you know. So there's a lot of great performances that get unnoticed in cars that are less less than worthy. You know, that that actually sometimes you have to do greater feats in a in a rubbish car than you do in a better car. So um so I didn't see any of it any any of it as being um I thought it was all good preparation because I I I just ha held on to the hope that one day um I'm going to get a crack at driving a good car and and I've got to be up to it. I've actually I wrote down a book here because um you mentioned the book earlier. You obviously it's been in the pipeline for a while and you've always been planning on releasing it this year and yeah i just never felt there was any way i didn't i didn't feel that there was a right time i mean i didn't when my son was racing i didn't really want to kind of take the limelight if you like from from him so he, uh, josh moving on to other things um and just a bit of time to let the dust settle and uh, things to fall into place i think after a bit you get a perspective on on your own career where it becomes almost like you're talking about someone else so i think it's it's easier for me to talk about it now than it was when i was closer to the event What's your, what's your perspective with hindsight on your two or three years head-to-head -head with Michael Schumacher? I think it did pretty well. I think, you know, the thing is, we didn't know he was Michael Schumacher then. We just thought he was very good, but we didn't know quite how good he was. <laughs> it's very so point, I isn't think it? You're, quite, you're quite chuff now. <laughs> I think looking back, I think I can be qu quite proud of my performances, you know, and I think that it, it's always, I always measure it. Um, I was first in line to be kind of criticised, if you like, because I wasn't as good as him. Um, and I think Ayrton clearly would have been much closer to him and, and given him a much tougher time. Um, but, um, you know, I was always growing and getting better, and I think Mike, racing against Michael helped me grow and, and extend myself to the, the maximum I was capable of doing, and if it hadn't been for that, then I would never have reached that, that height. So it's a good thing to have a, a competitor like Michael to race against. One thing I remember from that particular time, I can't remember if it was... Uh it might have been 95, um, early practice session at Hockenheim and the crowd are all, you know, the klaxons going, firecrackers going off every time Michael comes out, you come out the pits, jeers, boos, and you disappeared into the gravel at the last corner to pull the pit straight and you got jeered left, right and centre and you stood in the gravel trap and you bowed. You, you bowed very politely to them all, all the way around the, 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 the stadium. And then they started cheering. I thought it was just lovely. Brilliant. Okay, well, I, I'd forgotten that. I wish, I'd put, I wish I'd put that in my book. This is what it's like working with Simon Aaron on a daily so, basis. Thanks for that. Yeah. Um, I listen, the, the rivalry is fun. It, you know, I think that we're in, it, we're in the entertainment business. You know, we're, we're, it doesn't mean anything. It's, we're not saving anyone's lives. You know, we're out there being stupid enough to drive these dangerous fast cars as fast as they'll go and against other people who who want to see see our demise you know it's entertaining to watch that and i think that um you know the rivalry that was set up is the classic england versus germany rivalry it was was there wasn't it in 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 me me and michael and um and i always think it, we've got to put it into perspective and have some and have some fun while you can there's a, it wouldn't be a Damon Hill podcast if we didn't have a few Schumacher questions. Um, we've got one here from uh, Glenn, and he wants to know about your relationship with him after Formula One. And uh, he says that you went to go and visit him in hospital in 99, and what he, what he said then, and actually how things were after you stepped away from the cockpit. Yeah, but listen, I, w whatever happens in a competitive environment, and a lot of it is secondhand communication, so it comes through the media, and, and you don't know, you know... Every time I met Michael um, away from 
the job, let's say. He seemed like a perf perfectly nice guy, and I, I'm sure that I could have got to know him better. But I, di I didn't really know Michael, and there wasn't a relationship away from the circuit. And when he was at the track, he was very much the professional front of, of this um, pretty um, impenetrable, you know, superior competitor. So, you know, he was doing the right thing by doing that, um, but I, you know, I didn't have any, I didn't spend any time with Michael. The only time I spent any time with Michael was, was in 93. Um, we were at, um, in Australia and I actually went to the Barrier Reef on the same boat to do a bit of snorkeling, um, scuba diving. Um, but I didn't really know him that, that well then, you know, but he wasn't, he wasn't a championship contender then. Do you, uh, there's another question here from William about, about Schumacher and how you'd rate him against Prost and Senna. You obviously, yeah. you know, d racing, racing against both of them and, and yeah. Schumacher. How, where does he rate on the, on the he, scale? I mean, he's right up there. There's no, there's no question. The guy's, the guy had seat of the pants talent, which was second to none. He also had a clear thinkingness, which and an emotional detachment, which I think made him far more effective than most F1 drivers. Um, I think it's where you'd say Ayrton raced with his heart, you know, with his passion and his fire, and Michael raced with a kind of much cooler, um, a, a just as equally strong determination to win, but it was a much cooler headedness. So, th um, and that's where his his moments came from certainly against against you do you think he was able to just stay to, to focus and not and not get um emotion get the better of him i think there's a so sorry we're jumping around a lot um but we've got so many questions it, it seems uh wrong not to ask as many of them as possible and we've got one here from paul young about whether uh, to how your data compared to senna prost manson and uh, did you ever think blimey how are they doing that yeah, I mean, there's, there was clearly, um, we, we just started getting data logging, so it was possible to get uh, speed graphs. So these are the new things where, you know, we were able to say, okay, now I can see the speed trace of a guy going into, and it, it will surprise a lot of people to hear this, but it's not, it's not always the fast corners that are the, the ones where all the time is. Um, clearly, the, 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 you know, the more ballsy you can be through the fast corners as long as you get it right you can you can go through there you know quite a bit quicker Mansell was good at that as, as was Senna but it, the time is is nearly always in the braking area in the entry to the slow corners there's so much that goes on and it's the timing of it is so critical that what you can see with um, speed graphs is is quite often there's a thing that you call a little a knee or a kink in the in the speed graph where you see they come off the brakes just going into the last bit and there's they've kept the speed up and um so you'd look at that and you go well what the hell's going on there that's a bit weird you know um and i'd come from bike racing so i didn't do all the karting um and th these guys, I think, develop these, the ability to know what the back of the car is doing going into the corner because on carts they only had rear wheel braking. So they develop this technique of, of getting the car pitched slightly askew and using that to slow it um, and coming off the brakes. Um, so uh, little things like that were giveaways, but it didn't tell you how you did it. It just showed you that, that it was there. And uh, when you were testing for Williams, um, what what, were the what was the relationship like with the actual drivers? Because I suppose you didn't 
see them that much if you were doing all the testing midweek and pounding around no. tracks and things. But no. did, did you get any uh, <coughs> advice from them, help, or were, were they well, pretty focused on what they were... I'm thinking sort of Mansell portrays yeah. yeah. No, uh, when, I, when I arrived at Williams, Mansell was the man, and he flew in, he tested, he said hello to everyone, you know, he gave me a few um, pep talks and, and was pretty good, oh, very supportive all the time, Nigel, actually. And um, Ricardo as well. Um, and... Um, but then they go off back to wherever they live and what they do, whatever they do. I, know, I never got invited around to Nigel's house or anything <laughs> like that. So Surely you have sense, surely. <laughs> no, 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 I mean, you know, they live, they live different lives, you know. And um, uh, I mean, I never lived in Monaco. Uh, a lot of the guys who do that obviously see each other. You know, they're passing the street or they go down, you know, Waitrose or wherever they've got in Monaco. And, um, you know, so th- uh, there's that that happens. But I didn't. I, I never went into that world, and Nigel lived in the Isle of Man, and Ricardo, don't know where he lived, Italy, I suppose, I don't know, was he Monaco? But anyway, they, they live separately, so people fly in, they, they see in the garage, and then they, they're gone again. But as far as advice goes, I found them all extremely professional. I mean, they, I wasn't a threat to them, you know, in that capacity, so I think they were, they were fairly respectful, but they, didn't, they never said, listen, Damon, I'm going to help you find out what, and I wouldn't expect them to do that but it would almost be a bit strange if they it would be a bit <laughs> strange because everyone's everyone potentially could be a threat to them at some point and of course I was with Alain you know I definitely was um, at some points giving him a run for his money so he wasn't going to help me but I never found out with you know where I stood with um, with uh, Ayrton um, but he, he trounced me basically every time he got in the car um, but um, there was um, Nigel was was massive you know but um um, but he stopped racing, so I never really was a teammate. Oh, although I did do a couple of races, but he was uh, visiting. I would do races. Sorry, yeah. Simon. I was just said, how did you? Uh, you just said, you know, Ben effectively trounced you um, three times out of three uh, at the start of '94. I mean, how did you? I mean, you sec- particularly in the second half of '93, you'd run Alan Prost very close, and you'd beaten him a few times. I mean, how how did you deal with that when when Ayrton came in and proved to be such a force, and suddenly you find you've got to up your game a little bit more. How did you do, deal with that? Well, I was, I took the view that, you know, yeah, I, I was measuring myself against possibly the, the fastest racing driver of all time. Mm. So it's understandable that there's going to be a gap um, and uh, or expect to be expected. I mean, I know that someone like Mika Hakkinen would have, you know, gave, gave air to know, run for his money as well. You know, so it's a measure of how fast Mika is. But, you know, I, I've always, I think I was, I think I've allowed myself a little bit of, a margin with with those guys, you know, Prost and and and, and Mansell and Senna, because I, they were the stars of the day before I arrived, and I was always an understudy, you know, I was always seen as an understudy. It was only when I when Ayrton died after that that I was kind of hurled into this. I would I'd actually got he hadn't scored any points, so it was actually a, in the championship. I was second to, to 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 Michael, and so I was kind of thrown in to this front line position. Um, you know, a bit like the Battle of the Somme. You know, suddenly I was promoted to being an officer, and then I kind of had to um, uh, to step up to that new challenge. But I mean, I always had my eye on closing the gap as close as I could to Ayrton. You know, and if I could ever, you know, if I could ever have got qu- you know, to a position where I would have been quicker than him, it would have been fantastic to have found that out. But I, the closest I got was was a, a couple of tenths, really. Um, you know, three tenths really between me and, and him, and three tenths is is kind of acceptable gap but you know second and a half is not and a couple of times he was that much quicker 
safe to say you're probably the only person in this room who would have got within three tenths. So <laughs> <laughs> I, I wouldn't feel too bad about it. Um, there's, uh, talking about Williams, uh, it, it, there's a question here about Patrick Head, and it's, it's from Anthony. He's, he's just asking, was Patrick Head fun? But I, you know, what was he like to work for? Because um, obviously we've done, we did a podcast with him, and it was, um, I don't think any of us have cried with laughter quite so much. Um, he's a sort of bigger-than-life character, isn't he? Patrick is a proper, you know, character, person, a completely self-made um, uh, man. You know, in, in he's he's got utter conviction and and um, and uh, understanding of of his views. You know, and I think this is a rare thing. You know, that we we often dance around the edges well not you know you know Patrick is not going to he's not going to if he's, he's got a point of view he's going to let you know I mean he's a bit of a Boris Johnson in, in some ways I don't know maybe not that's unfair but uh, um, you know he's I think it's I think it's good that we have somebody who says says it how it is and I I I completely you know adored working with with um, Patrick and um, and with Frank because they were very much of that kind of English uh, attitude that I was brought up with, you know, this this sort of, um, you know, it, it hit them between the eyes with it, with it, you know, the 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 straight talk rather than than um, than the sort of not not communicate. So Patrick was was great to work with, and and um, he staggered me with his ability to know not only his own job but everyone else's job should be. And he's already he come up and give you a bit of uh, a pep talk and. He, you think, how the hell does he do that? How does he know what I should be focusing on? Because he's, he's clearly gone through his own, in his own head, he's gone through what that person should be doing and that should person should be doing. You know, there were moments where we bumped, bumped heads, pun, no pun intended, but, you know, it definitely, um, you know, it, uh, there's an element of a frustrated racing driver there in, in Patrick. And, and you can imagine they put so much time and effort into their cars and then these wallies turn up and drive their car and don't do a, don't get the best out of it. They You can understand them getting a bit upset. Are there, are there any sort of um, particularly memorable rollickings you'd like to share with the world? Um, I gave him the steering wheel once at Spa. I mean, he, you know, he came in. I, I was just, it was the first day, first run or something and we were just going out and doing installation runs or something like that and he, I came in and he started ranting at me saying what was I doing <laughs> so I'm, I'm just we just we just started, what do you mean and he said I said okay you drive it and I gave him the steering wheel <laughs> and then he stormed out of the car saying, saying that's what we pay you to do um, so um, bless him, you know he's it, it, it was a bit out of the blue that one but um, uh not really, no. He's, he's, yeah, he, he's, he's, he's an individual, definitely. It was, it was an amazing team, Frank and Patrick, and uh, what they achieved together. Incredible story. So we're, we're going to get technical briefly. Um, hopefully not for too long, because otherwise I, you will completely lose me. Um, this is a question from Peter, who, uh, by the way, thinks you're the best guy correspondent by far. Um, and he wants details, details, details galore. But I was, he's asked a lot of questions, actually. But this one um, was referring to, to the active ride, Williams. And why was it not so good in low-speed corners, but better in high-speed? Is that because of the active ride? I wasn't aware that it was not good in slow-speed corners. Who said that? Uh, well, Peter did. So. Okay. <laughs> well, um, well so I think not, it was pretty true. dominant everywhere. I don't yeah. think there was anywhere where it was, wasn't as good as anyone else. I think possibly what he means is that, that, that it had... The, the way it worked was it was actually a platform system. So it, it, um, it wasn't 
fully active in the sense that it positioned the suspension in precisely the way that it that it wanted it to do to follow the road. It 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 reacted to um, or it provided a platform uh, at the right height at different speeds. So it kept the attitude of the floor at the the right optimum aerodynamic place so when you when you got to slow speed corners there wasn't much suspension movement so it's possible it wasn't as good as say you know a passive car could have had a slightly softer springing um in some of the low speed stuff was it was it a difficult car to get to the limit um i never found it i don't sometimes i don't think he found the limit i mean that's where nigel was brilliant because i do think he he just you know he actually said bridge corner he said that you just have to believe it's going to work you know, because... Big leap of faith, isn't it? Yeah, but, you know, you, I pushed the damn thing as hard as I could go. And, I mean, it, there comes a point where you're actually overcooking the tyres, so is, there's no point. Um, so, um, uh, but I never really had any issues with it. I, I, I was great fun in that car, yeah. I mean, it was you could do anything you like with it. You could program it to roll into the corners if you wanted to, or you could program it to do anything you like. I mean, we worked with Patrick, uh, Paddy Lowe, and... Um, and um, he'd say, right, what do you want to do? And I said, I haven't got a clue. What, do you, so what can it do? And he <laughs> what says, can so, it do? Well, it can do anything. And I go, oh, well, let's do anything then. And that was, there was no, there was no, um, you know, experience of this thing. It was, it was, you could do whatever you liked. What is it? Well, we don't know. We're finding out completely. It was a real test driver's job. Amazing. So uh, jumping forward a bit to 96, 97, we've got a couple of questions um, on, on these two. Um, uh, one from Matt. You're proof that nice guys don't always finish last, which is nice. Um, what was Pedro Diniz like as a driver and a person? He was a nice guy. Right. We'll <laughs> go on to Nick Mitchell. <laughs> no, he was a really nice guy. I, I, lo I love Pedro. Pedro was a really nice guy. Uh, he came, he, he'd come from a very um, well-off family in Brazil, and he was, he was pretty... Um, uh, you know, he was... He'd got quite good... Um, um, uh, what's the right word? He, um, sponsorship. Yeah, he'd got quite good sponsorship, <laughs> but he was also I think that's he, was a that's he was a very um, gentle and polite guy, and and um, and he was he could be quick too. Yeah. So, um, uh, but um, he lived in a completely different world to us. You know, he was he was sort of Brazilian super rich, and um, but um, nice guy. And and the other one on ninety six ninety seven. Uh, this is from Nick Mitchell actually, who owns the Formula Ford. Uh, which loss hurt more, um, Monaco ninety six or Hungary ninety seven? You wanted to know. Oh, I think Monaco definitely. I mean, you know, we we never expected to get where we got to with with uh, Hungary, and um, it, it was. I never thought it got it would get past lap twenty, and it kept going and going. <laughs> so you know, the fact that it eventually was no surprise, but it just why did it have to do on the last <laughs> lap? Anyway. Um, but um, but Monaco was a shame because uh, everyone wants to have a Monaco in their in their um, cabinet, don't they? Can you expand a little on Budapest '97? Because I mean, an Arrows Yamaha being anywhere near the top half of the grid, never mind fourth or wherever you qualified at third, and then future. So was it was you I mean you swept past Michael very easily? Was that just Bridgestone having an advantage over Goodyear that weekend? Yeah, that well in the race their bl yeah. the tyre started blistering, so he started losing traction. But um, and I could see it was you know he was going to be in trouble. Um, so he must still have been quite surprised to be leading a Grand Prix in an Arrows Yamaha. Well, not half. I mean, you know, <laughs> I mean, we turned up. I mean, the car had, I don't know how much less horsepower it had than anyone else. But of all the circuits, that's the one where you don't need <laughs> it. And but the car's handling was good. Uh, it didn't probably have massive downforce, but it was it was okay. And I'd got a nice balance, and I'd got experience. I liked Hungary, 
and I'd got it set up so I could really use the corners to get the time and um and the Bridgestones were the right tires to have they brought the right compound so um it just shows the importance of tires they still are so sadly I think it's so important there's a around the same time obviously the the McLaren offer um David was wondering you know how you know how that came about and why you said no and could you have how you would have fared basically uh, well I'd like to think I would have um stood a chance of winning another championship um, if it had uh, come to pass but um, I'd have to beat uh, Mika Hakkinen and that wouldn't be easy um, um, but it was an Adrian Newey car you know and I'd had experience with Adrian so it would it was um, it was certainly uh, it would have been it would have been fun but I mean I don't think you can go back and go if you st if you start pulling apart your career and go oh well, I did the wrong thing here wrong thing there and it should have this should have happened I think it's the wrong way to look at it you know um, you, you things happen for a reason and you make the best of whatever situation you you end up in and, and if I, I look at it like this I made the best of the situation or the opportunity I got with Williams I made the best of the opportunity I had with Arrows and I made the best of the opportunity I had with Jordan so that was my F1 career. Talking about sorry to the F1 there's a question here about whether you ever wanted to do Le Mans or Indy um, obviously it, it it would have been on your radar because yeah. of your dad's no, but no I definitely didn't have any so, well, you did Le Mans but did you want to because you, you didn't I, I, wouldn't, I, would, I wouldn't want to do Indy I, I mean I, I just don't know how those guys do that I mean it, the the shunts they have are just horrific you know and, and I I really I am so lucky I've got my legs you know every time I think about the, the bike racing I used to do you know you look at all my friends like Johnny and, and Martin you know and, and, and Mark, uh, Martin as well you know um and Barry, you know, they, they are in such pain because of their broken limbs. And uh, Mark Blunder was very lucky as well. He had a massive shunt. I mean, so, um, and the timing as well, it came, it, it would have come at the end of my career and I'd already decided I didn't want to do any more um, dangerous jobs after that, after my F1 career. How do you feel now about the way the, the, the Williams episode ended? Um, well, it's, it, it's it seems to have been a kind of, comedy of errors by by the time you unpick it all um you, it's a good chapter in it actually in my book why don't you tell us where people can buy this and how much it is because i think we should I think we should get us all out in the open by, costing there's pounds. actually a lot of people do have referred to your book so you you've got certainly some future purchases yeah no no right it's here. i mean there's conjecture i've got i don't have the full picture i have a um i have a an idea of what happened and i have um some background knowledge to what might have happened as well but uh, I think that it's possible that that, that, that Frank regrets the decision um, um, and that it um, that it was a it, it wasn't it didn't turn out the way they wanted it to but um, I think that it affected my attitude towards our sports quite badly and I think I became slightly slightly um, cynical about well, I thought the, sp the sport was cynical, and so I think that that um, that changed my approach to to the way we we run things in F one. I mean, w you know, I worked on the the presumption that um, that if I did well enough in ninety six, then I would have earned my right to stay, keep my job in F one. Winning the world championship should do one. it. You'd think so. Yeah. Um, you'd think that would at least you know at least be able to stay and have another go after that but um it doesn't work like that 
when when did you first know for sure? Because I, I mean, I know the story broke. Hockenheim, Andrew Benson did a yeah. piece in Autosport, um, and the place went haywire. But when did you actually find out for definite that you were? I found out when he when it ran a real Autosport. Well, uh, if you can call mm. that finding it mm. out. Um, but you had no clue before that. No, came out. I assumed I I'd, I'd taken the view that this was just sensationalism, and I thought, well, maybe there's. And it was only a gradual process of finding out that actually there was some truth to it, and that happened between Germany and then eventually at Monza, before Monza, I was told. And so I had to go, to, I'm still fighting for the world championship and I had to go to the race knowing I'd lost my job. It's quite humiliating, you know, it's quite upsetting, and especially when you've got your teammate there who's fighting for the world championship as well and he's keeping his job for next year. I mean, that must have, you must have had to dig exceptionally yeah, deep to no, deal with these, that. that that's what the test is. Mm. It's not whether you can drive, it's how you cope with all the other stuff. There's lots of people who can drive, um, but it's about these other trials and tests you get put through uh, in the sport. And I was learning fast. You know, I'd come into Formula One, you know, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed at 93, and I'd went through quite a lot in a very short space of time. And um, so, you know, when you read about Formula One, from the outside and you see Mansell's unhappy about this or Piquet's unhappy about that and you, Alan Jones is, wants to put an axe in the back of, uh, <laughs> you know, of Reutemann's, you know, shoulder blades and you think, what, what is going on in this sport? You know, what is the matter? And it's only when you get in there you realise how it can happen. Um, it's, there's, a, there's a lot of politics and a lot of, um, you know, pushing and shoving that goes on. But I mean, how, I mean, how, how did you actually deal with those sort of, those last, few races of the season knowing what you you now knew and I mean how, how did you cope I mean what did you, you do you can only do what you can you there's some things you can affect and there's some things you can't affect you can't worry about the stuff you can't affect it's done there's nothing you can do so you just go right I have got a contract that as far as I know I can turn up to race they'll give me a car to race so I'm going to race the car you turn up you race the car and you just do the best you can that's the only thing you can do all the politics of F1, part of the reason why when you left, it was it was like turning off a light switch. There was no, oh, I might go and do DTM, I might go and do... It was no, no, because, you know, I, I, I'd lost my dad when I was 15. Um, you know, my dad just retired. Um, and we were looking forward to, you know, happy times in the future. I've got four children. You know, I'd been through the risks of Formula One. So when I stopped, I wasn't going to do something silly. You know, I just, I just made that a rule. I was going to, you know... Stay away from all of those temptations, and um, so I was. I was, th you know, I'd, I had my full of uh, of that. You know, you don't, you can't, you can't really do it half-heartedly either. You know, you can't go into it and go, oh, "I'll do a bit of this," but it's not. It's not how you build. You know, you you have to win. You have to do the best. So there's a the moment you get into race is this pressure that you comes from within you to perform a hundred percent, and if it's you don't want to put yourself through that mangle if you're going to get, you know, beaten up by a bunch of, you know, twenty-two-year-olds in in DTM or something like that because you don't care, yeah. you know. <laughs> what I've done, I'm, I'm not going to do it. So there's that element too. You know, you're not getting faster as a forty-year-old. Yeah. The um. I remember you saying, I mean, because you you did come back and do one race in the VW Sirocco. Yeah. And I remember you telling me you really didn't enjoy it. Oh, well, I got I was fastest on the first day. I managed to, um. <laughs> Which was enjoyable. 
the competitive spirit is. <laughs> but then you finished your level. You didn't enjoy that. Then, did you? I, then I kind of. What happened was. What happened was I went into it and I was asking questions to the engineer because we had this echo boost or something thing um, that you could get, and I was working out how you could use it. And so I, I worked out how to do that, and I, and then of course they all saw the data after that, so they all knew what to do after that, and. Um, and so the next day I'd go, I didn't qualify that well. And then I got hit up the ass by someone in Druids so hard that I thought they'd thought it, you thought it was Mark I got out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, got back I couldn't Blundell. believe the shunt. It was so heavy. <laughs> and I, I came in, I thought, my back end must be hanging off. I looked out the car, there's not a scratch on it. And I went, <laughs> blimey. Anyway, look, I'm, I've had enough. I, I don't want to play anymore. So that's enough of that. Um, the, the, there's a question here about uh, the, the, the Jordan era. Um, and w w what was it like working for Eddie? Because uh, he's obviously, I mean, such a... A lot of fun Yeah, working with Eddie, yeah. Um, and it's a lot of pain as well. <laughs> <laughs> it's, Eddie is... Still haven't been able to escape him. He's, you know, in the paddock all the time and you're there and things. Yeah, and, and Eddie's uh, a very good friend of mine and uh, he does an awful lot of work for charities and he uses his personality for, for good... Um, for good ends as well. Um, he's been a very successful man, you know, and he's he's and he's done it his way. How, I mean, how how did Eddie how did Eddie sell the team to you? I mean, what 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 what, what was it? Or was that the only option you had? Well, um, yeah, I got confused when he said sell the team to me. No, no, um, no, no I don't no, remember no, buying no, an F one no, team. No, no, I, no. I seem no. to. What you you haven't yeah. read the news? No? Yeah. Um, that's a bit like that Bernie quote, isn't it? When yes. uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Did you remember buying Lotus or whatever it was? I don't remember buying Lotus. But anyway, um, but no, I, I, you know, I had some offers on the table when I left Arrows, and um, so one of them was Eddie's. And um, um, but if you read his book, um, it's not as good as your book. It's not it? as good as my book, but I've read his book. It's not on sale. He, makes, now, it, he it? makes it sounds like he was really reluctant to sign me, which. Um, was <laughs> you didn't have to sign me, Eddie. You know, you could have you could have got someone else. But anyway, um, so it was the most competitive option that there was available. I had lots of offers, but I looked at all of them and just thought, these the the, the the I've got to have a competitive chance, otherwise I'm just not going to be interested. So it was Jordan, or yeah, they were they were the first in the queue, really. We haven't got long left, so I thought we'd turn our attention to sort of the modern day. Um, F1 and, and what you're doing now. And this uh, question here that's um, very interesting is, are you happier now on TV chatting about F1 than you were in your BRDC president era? Because you seem very uh, natural on camera and very happy doing what you're doing. Is that, well, is that I a fair reflection? I, I, I've been very lucky to, to, to fall in with the Sky crew. You know, Martin, Martin suggested I do it um, I wanted to, you know, if I wanted to have a go. And at the time I was... Um, I, I wanted to get some extra money in for Josh's racing as well, so Sky were, were very good to take me on. And um, I was a bit sceptical at first. I, I was sort of doing it because I wasn't, you know, I thought well, I might be having to do it. But um, they're such a great team, and they, and they really do, I think, set the standard. And I think that they, they're a very vibrant, young, energetic team who go out there and want to do the best show. And I've had a lot of fun with, with working with the guys, the whole crew, um, you know, um, and um, and Simon Lays has been been very good in helping me, you know, find my feet. And uh, and I think it's good if people are saying that it looks it looks com I look comfortable. I certainly feel more comfortable doing it now. And um, but there was a lot of catching up to do. I, I suddenly realised I didn't know nearly as much as about my own sport as I really <laughs> ought to. Um, and it's quite terrifying how much background work goes into into providing 
um, the fans with all the information. I mean, a journalist, I think, works harder than anyone sometimes in, in our sport because they have to know everything about everything. Um, and when you're, when you're competing yourself, it tends to be more about just your own thing. Because yeah. I was going to ask, what, what's it like being on the other side of the fence? Because, you know, obviously in, during your career, you've got journalists coming up at annoying times, asking annoying questions, yeah. and now you're, you're that guy. Well, I, I definitely don't like putting a driver on the spot um, because having been a driver myself, I think, you know, I'm sometimes asked, put in a position where I have to ask a difficult question of them. And I, 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 I sympathise with their position. I know, understand what it's like going through what they're going through. Um, so that side of it is, is, um, is a little bit awkward for me. But um, I, uh, I do think that there is, uh, it's, I would recommend, it's almost as if, if only they could have done this first, if I could have done this about my career first before I got into it, then I would see why people ask these questions. Why, you know, we don't know what's going on. We want you to help, the competitor to help us understand. And conversely, the competitor needs to understand that they're in a job which is, as we said earlier, entertainment. And so there has to be a, a communication of your feelings, your thoughts, you know. It can be tedious as hell. They have Ask, they ask the same questions over and over and over again. And I can understand them getting, getting a bit tetchy and, and fed up. I, 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 in some ways, I think it would be easier for them if there were just less, every single broadcaster wants to have their own exclusive interview. It must, it, you know, it's very hard for the competitors to go through everyone. But it's interesting, actually, because having done bits and pieces in an F1 paddock, you, you think, oh, God, it's so difficult to talk to people. And it's, it's actually not. Compared to other sports, the access the media gets in Formula One is, is incredible. You know, I mean, if you think about trying to interview any of the, a football team having just come off the pitch, you're not going to be able to do it. I mean, Simon will probably know more about this because you occasionally watch football, altering them, maybe not England. Um, but it's, the, the access is, is incredible. So, uh, you know, I, I suppose it makes your job easier, but then harder because of so many people asking the same question. Well, do, you, do you remember they used to, there was an Alan Partridge sketch, um, uh, I think, about, um, uh, or was it not like news? You know, they were talking about why why Formula One drivers always look so miserable after, you know, after the post-race uh, interview or during the post-race interview. And I, I think it's worth explaining this. When you compete, your concentration level is so high and you've got a helmet on and you've got a radio, but basically you're living in this little bubble of your own little world. And then you, you pop out of it at the end of the race and suddenly you're bombarded with all this stuff and the mind is still in the race. It takes a while for, for you to get over um, being in your cockpit and being in the car. And so, um, plus being they're, they're a bit exhausted too. So, um, so I think that, um, uh, you know, racing drivers have, have evolved in their media skills since the days of PK and, and Mansell and Jones and stuff, you know, and, um, and they've become much more sophisticated and, and in some ways they become more cagey because they know if they say the wrong thing, um, they can get themselves into more deep trouble. So um, it, it's getting it's getting better in some ways. It's getting worse. You know, they, they, they it's just a shame that they, we can't make them f relax more and be themselves. Is that, it reminded me of that uh, wonderful sketch with Hugh Laurie and Stephen Fry. And Hugh Laurie's pretending to be an F1 driver having just won a race. And Stephen Rice saying, oh, do you know, how was he? He said, oh, well, you know, it was actually a really difficult race. He said, yeah, yeah, but you won the race. How was that? Exactly, <laughs> that's, the, that's the one I'm yeah, thinking of. Is, yeah, yeah, Laurie, yeah. And, he, and he, said, he said, but you're really happy. And he was going, oh, yeah, but my tyres were going <laughs> off. And that, I'm afraid, was the public image of a Formula One driver. But I was trying to explain, you know, they actually, they're trained. When I, when I first got in a, in a, 
in a Williams, I um, at first test, I went out and drove the car, and it was an FW14, I think. I went round short circuit at Silverstone and just couldn't believe my experience. And I got back, and Patrick Head said to me, said, um, said, so how was it, Damon? And um, I said, it was fantastic, Patrick, absolutely amazing. He said, oh, he said, um, we were hoping it'd be a bit more critical. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, sorry. It was shit. You know, the car is so bad, I can't tell you. So, you know, that's the, that's the normal state of affairs with the racing drivers. You've got to complain about everything. So they're trained to complain. Well, do, you, do, you like the way, do you like the way the Formula 1 has evolved in the modern era? Or if you, you were in charge, would you sort of scrap the rules and start again with a clean sheet of paper? It's as if you can see over my shoulder. That was actually my final question. <laughs> yeah, perfect. Thank you. Well, I think we'd all, we'd all like that. We'd all like to dream of... Um, you know what we would do if we could start again and we can't that's the point we can't we can't undo it sort of it, 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 my only worry is it's it's sort of gradually engorging itself you know it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger and and the more the bigger it gets the more the investment becomes a factor and the less easy it is then to start trimming and changing it um and I, but i always ask anyone you know when i did the brdc i i said listen guys if if we if we could cash in our chips now, what would you do with the money? And it's, I think Bernie's in many ways a genius. He always says, people don't know what they want, they only know what they don't want. And it's true. If you say to someone, okay, what do you want? If some waiter comes in and says, what do you want to eat? I don't know. Well, here's a menu. We always need a menu. And actually, it's not such an easy thing to say, okay, if we started here, what would we do? Um, I think there'll be as many different formulas as there are people who, um, who uh, you know, love the sport. So, and then you've got to try and decide which one to have. It's a bit like Brexit. <laughs> and on that bombshell, <laughs> I think we should probably finish. <laughs> David, thank you so much for coming in and chatting about everything. And I'm sorry about all the, the questions from every which angle. But I'm um, very happy 20th anniversary of that World Championship win. Thank you win. very much for interviewing me and giving me the chance to talk about myself again. Yeah, no, and, you, and your book. And, book. and your book. <laughs> it's out no. in September. Out in September, right. Well, look yeah. out for it because it will be, if there's anything like the podcast, it'll be a fantastic read. It will be. Thank you, guys. Yeah. And I uh, hope all your listeners... Um, um, get everything they want from this. There's probably more questions. But yeah, there, there were lots more questions. I got through as many as possible. Okay. But thank you so much for coming in and answering so many. Simon, thank you very much. Alan, thank you so much for doing the sound. We'll be back next month for another talk show, and we'll see you all then. Bye-bye. <laughs>